Forget about the joy of giving. Forget about Christmas cheer. You will find the meaning of Christmas right here. More stuff, more stuff. Everybody wants to get more stuff. Stuff in a stocking, stuff in a sack. You're killing the planet. You're killing my back. More stuff. More stuff. It's getting kind of hard to ignore stuff. We're running out of places to store stuff. You want more stuff? More stuff. More stuff. Why does everybody want more stuff? Santa will be bringing you more stuff. You want more Good morning. We are so glad that you are worshiping with us here at West this morning. If you're worshiping with us in person or online, my name is Andrea Smith, and we extend a very special and warm welcome to you on this Thanksgiving weekend. We're glad to have the college students back, and we hope that today you walk away having thought about Christmas and all the things that lead up to Christmas, maybe in a different way. I know that if you are looking at Facebook pages and other church marketing right now, you will see that the, our theme is perhaps a little different than the most normal of churches. Most churches don't have a message series called A Happy Crap-Filled Christmas. And so I'll confess the idea for this came from my own household as we, you know, prepare to decorate for Christmas and we start moving things around. Scott, my husband, consistently says, we have too much crap. And so I hope the word does not offend you. It's a word that probably a lot of us use. And so here at West, we're real and we're relevant and we try to be non-threatening. So probably since it's a word we use, you use, I use, we're going to talk about it this Christmas season and hopefully come away with some deeper meaning about what Christmas can be if we actually lose our distractions and focus on the real miracle of Christmas. Today, we're going to talk about tough miracles and what that might mean and how that ties in to uh, the, the junk and the stuff that comes along with Christmas. A couple of plugs I want to put at the beginning of the message that I don't normally do, but this is a, a different season of the year. We will have Christmas Eve services. So if you're worshiping with us now and you're getting ready to go back out of town, on Christmas Eve, we will have one service this year. And our friends from Faith and St. Paul United Methodist, the two sister African-American churches that we partner with, they're going to join us here at West. Uh, so we're excited about that. That service will be at 5.30. It will be candlelight communion. So I invite you to join us then. And then on the Wednesday night before Christmas, we're going to have this thing called a glow stick Christmas. It's a family-friendly Christmas service. It's our Christmas Eve Eve service, but Christmas Eve Eve this year falls on Friday. And so we thought, you know, lots of people go out of town uh, on Friday, so we're going to move it back to Wednesday. So you'll be getting uh, promo materials about that. As you go through your own closets and your own homes, getting ready to get more stuff that happens every year at Christmas, we invite you to save 
leave all of your clothes. We are going to be doing a clothes drive starting next week for the back to school bash. Uh, that This year we gave away clothes to the kids. We had like a free store for the 1,000 plus children and their families that came. And that was one of the biggest hits of the bash, one of our new additions. So as you go through your closets and you pull your clothes out, if you'll save them and start bringing them here on Sunday morning, we would be grateful. And the last announcement that I have is we do uh, our version of Angel Tree. It's called Ding Dong Ditch. And what happens is the last Sunday before Christmas, families have been nominated by you. People that not necessarily are in financial need, they may be, but they don't have to be. They just need some love during the Christmas season. And so you guys adopt them off the tree. So we invite you to do that after the worship service. And then you bring the gifts that they uh, need. They have not asked for these things. These are things that the sponsor family has said that they could use or need. And then we go ring the doorbell the Sunday before Christmas and then we disappear. Uh, it's anonymous. It's an anonymous way of showing love. And basically, that's what we're talking about this Christmas season in this message series, Have a Happy Crap-Filled Christmas. I want you to do me a favor. If you have your cell phones with you, will you pull those out for just a second? I want to give you a phone number, and then I want you to do something with that phone number. The phone number is... Um, 704-928-6083. I want you to send me a text. This is the West phone. Thank you, amazing people in the sound tech booth. You guys rock. 704-928-6083. I want you to send me a text to this number. This is the West phone number. If you ever need pastoral care or prayer, uh, if you send a request to this number, you can rest assured that our amazing Faye Carrasca, who is our staff person over pastoral care, will share that with me and, and the rest of the staff, and we will pray for you. But this morning, I want you to send a text to that number, and I want you to tell me the best Christmas gift you've ever received. So if you'll take just a few seconds and and text me the best Christmas gift you've ever received. You can do it anonymously. You don't have to tell us who you are. And throughout the week this week, we'll be writing devotions and uh, we'll be reflecting on some of the gifts and the stuff that we have gotten that actually do bring about a change in our lives. If it's the best Christmas gift you've ever received, then probably you remember it. It sticks out in your mind. So be looking for that in this week's devotions. Now, as you do that, I want to show you some pictures this morning. We spend on average about $830 per person on things and gifts and stuff for Christmas. About uh, 30% of Americans spend over $1,000, and about 17% of Americans spend between, somewhere between 200 and 400. And so uh, we, we are a consumeristic society. You know that, I know that. Up on the stage, you see pictures of, or not pictures, you see stuff that is a part of our consumer driven Christmas. And you know what? I would be unrealistic and fake if I told you that we shouldn't have any of this and, you know, we should all sit around the fire and just, you know, pour over scripture and, and just take away all the trappings of Christmas. I absolutely love Christmas. My 
my family uh, cringes when it comes because I want the whole house decorated and get a little grumpy if folks don't help me decorate. And so this weekend, it was all hands on deck, and the Smith house looks like Christmas. I love Christmas. I love the stuff and the stores. I love all the parts and pieces of it. But sometimes we get distracted by that. So uh, I want you to clap right now if you're distracted by my blinking sweater and my amazing bell slippers. Will you clap if this distracts you this morning? Oh, only, so I guess you guys are used to my bizarreness by now. If you've worshiped with us for a while, I guess I'm not distracting. That's good. I thought, I thought this would actually be distracting to you. I'm glad that it isn't. But I do think probably we get distracted from the things that mean the most at Christmas. I want to show you, I think this is very interesting. Every year in our society, there are groups and polls and surveys that study our trends at Christmas. Christmas. So as a fun way to kick off this this message series and this message today, I wanted to show you the top gifts of the last, oh, I don't know, 50, 60 years, show it to you very quickly. And I want you to see how many of these you actually owned or purchased. I want you to count uh, as we go through those. And we're going to do that very quickly. The first is Elmo. Do you know that Elmo hit the top charts Three different years with Toss and Tickle Elmo, Let's Rock Elmo, and then Elmo Live. Elmo has a lot of diversity. So that is one of the top gifts in three different years. Next, we had a technology boom with an iPad and the iTouch. Next, the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360. Uh, Interesting point about the Xbox 360, it was launched 69 days after uh, the idea began. So somebody put a lot of, of sweat into making that happen, and it ended up being the biggest gift. Next, Care Bears and the Smurfs. Next, we combined a lot of different ones on this screen. We have a Razor Scooter, a Tamagotchi, that was like a little digital pet, Pokemon, which is still big today, and Furby. Do you know that with the Tamagotchi, the little thing in the middle, you would feed your pets, you would take care of your pets, and everything was digital. This was such a big hit back then that when folks, when their pets would die, you could actually reset the machine, and then, you know, you could have a new pet come back to life. But some people were so devastated when their pet died that they would actually take the little digital plastic plastic piece and bury it in their yard. And that's how over the top some people were with their Tamagotchi. Next, Beanie Babies. Next, Barney. Next, the Power Rangers. Next, the Game Boy. Back in 1989, I didn't realize that it was that long ago that that was so popular. Next. Clap if you even know what this is. A few of you, I had no idea. We were having worship planning, visioning yesterday morning, and I asked Brad and Adam, I'm like, what in the world is this? And, and they actually knew what it was. It ended up being some kind of gambling tool. Uh, they were like a little milk jug 
tops. I don't know. I don't know. I need somebody to explain this to me after worship. Next, Cabbage Patch Kids and Rubik's Cube. Next, this fascinated me. In 1975, this was the biggest selling item of the season. A pet rock in a cardboard box. And I, I want to share with you, and Luann Gatlin was at our worship visioning yesterday morning, and she said, oh, I owned one of those. I'm like, so really, like y'all paid money for a cardboard box and a rock? She's like, yeah. She said, lots of people had them. Well, I guess so. If it was the top selling item that year at Christmas, maybe in 1975, there wasn't a lot to sell. I'm not really sure. But as I was researching this, uh, I was five years old back then. When I was researching this, do you know that this box, and the rock, just a rock that came inside of it, came with a 32-page manual of how to care for the rock. I was fascinated by that. I had never seen anything like it before. Next, Barbie. Next, Mr. Potato Head and Slinky. And interestingly enough, you know, a lot of these toys are still around today, not the Pet Rock, but uh, these two things. And do you know back when the Potato Head was popular, they did not actually sell the brown potato. Kids were encouraged to go and take the eyes and the nose and the ears and the hands and all those parts and pieces and put it in an actual real potato. It wasn't until much later that they actually started producing the plastic potato and lastly the yo-yo a vintage Duncan yo-yo now will you clap if you have purchased or received any of these gifts now here's the question I want us to answer today have any of these actually changed your life Probably not. I mean, I grew up in the era that many of these were popular. And since then, Scott and I have purchased many of those for our children. Uh, I got lucky and bought a Tickle Me Elmo at Roses long before Roses actually, you know, went bankrupt. I was there one day. Andrew was like six months old and I saw this cute little Elmo and he laughed and he, he moved and shook. And I thought, oh, that'd be really, really cool. We'll get that for Andrew for Christmas. I think we, I bought it like in October. Little did I know that it was going to become the hottest selling item of the season. My mother-in-law tried to convince me to sell it, you know, and make a profit off of it. She told me Andrew would never know the difference. You know, in hindsight, he would have never known the difference, and Scott and I could have actually made a profit off of that Christmas gift that year. Tickle Me Elmo did not change my son's life. It didn't change our lives, and Actually, you know, most of these things, if not all of these things, really do not have a lasting impact with us. But Christmas, the season of Christmas, is actually supposed to have a lasting impact. We're supposed to be transformed throughout the season. And uh, the sweater that I have on this morning, it shows actually how I... I'm ashamed to admit, but actually how I feel on Christmas Eve, sometimes after the last amen is said and the last carol is sung and people are greeting me as they leave, they're like, oh, it was beautiful. I'm like, I'm just so glad it's finished. And then I realize I'm the preacher. 
and I'm not supposed to feel that way. You know, I just want to be like Santa and be on a beach somewhere relaxing because we've lost the meaning of Christmas. I lose sight of the meaning of Christmas. This and Holy Week are our busiest times of year. And you know what? I get caught up in the trappings of what make this Christmas, wanting to make sure that the cookies are baked and all the gifts are wrapped and the right gifts are purchased and all those parts and pieces. And I lose sight of the real meaning. So this morning, I want to share with you just two short verses. It's from the Magnificat, which is what Mary said uh, after she found out that she was going to have a baby. And this baby was going to be a different kind of baby. This was going to be a baby that brought about a change in the world. It's Luke 1, 46 through 48. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For God has looked with favor on the humble and lowliness of his servant. So Mary was this young girl, and I will be totally upfront with you if you read on before this and after, and you read about the virgin birth, scholars have lots of debate around what that actually means and different branches of Protestantism and Catholicism. They believe different things about the virgin birth. And so this morning, I'm going to ask that you put, a, put aside any doubt that you may have about that. Um, lots of scholars say different things. So the, the point that I want us to come to this morning as we look at Mary and talk about what it means to have a miracle occur in our lives and what tough miracles can mean, uh, think for just a second just about this, this young girl, 15 years old, came from a, a lowly estate, a humble estate. She was not one of the wealthiest ones in her village. And whether you believe in the virgin birth narrative or not, we do have historical evidence to prove that, you know, like, this person, Jesus of Nazareth, that was born to the person of Mary, actually lived and walked on the earth. And, you know, clearly something, something must have mattered from his life and from her life if, you know, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about it. I think so many times in religion and in spirituality, we lose the, the big picture because we get caught up on semantics. Because, you know, for so long, certain denominations preached and taught that you had to believe this very linear way of thinking. And last Sunday, when we had 11 confirmands, young adults, join the church and profess their faith, we tried to whittle away some of those semantics. And if you weren't able to worship with us last Sunday, I invite you to watch that message online or listen to the podcast. But the bottom line is we have this young woman named Mary. She was 15 years old. She was not popular. Her parents were poor. She would be considered in our society as someone who needed to be a recipient of our ding-dong ditch ministry. And yet she gives us a miracle she gives a miracle to humanity that withstands the test of time. And the definition of a miracle is an interruption of natural laws of order or of science. An interruption of the natural laws and order of science that the only explanation that can be given for that is divine interruption. 
Something had to interrupt those natural laws of, of order and science. And then usually miracles are accompanied by miracle workers. If you don't walk away with anything else that I've said this morning other than people paid a lot of money in 1975 for a pet rock, I would like for you to walk away with the definition of a miracle. Because you see, I think miracles still happen in our world today. But I also think that it's up to us to be the conveyors of those miracles. And what if for the next, you know, 20, 25 days in the season of Advent, which means preparation for Christmas, and in the season of Christmas, we become the miracle workers. You see, God... The divine being, the divine presence, Yahweh, whatever you want to call God, the divine love, needed a human being to take the greatest miracle to earth. And so he chose Mary. And there's so many lessons in the fact that that's who he chose. He didn't choose someone with prestige and power. He chose a humble person just like you and me. And so she bears this baby and this baby comes about and brings such a change to our world. He allowed people to redefine what, what God was. He showed us how to take away all the distractions and the stuff and the junk that gets in our lives. And he reminded us to focus on the things that matter. That was what his whole life was about. You know, love God and, and love each other and let the rest go. So this morning, as we get ready to celebrate, you know, one of the biggest holidays of the year, what if we take away the distractions of the, the crap and the junk of Christmas, and what if we become miracle workers? The, the thing is, though, miracles are not always easy to convey. Sometimes they're tough. And so, in the last part of today's message, I want us to think about what it means to have tough miracles. That would be the miracle that Mary ushered in. You see, it took great sacrifice. And if we're going to be miracle workers and miracle bearers, and if we're going to interrupt the natural order of the way that things happen in our society and our universe right now, it, it requires that same sacrifice on our part as far as level or degree. It may not be the physical sacrifice like Mary made to give birth at 15 years old and her spouse husband was a little frustrated and wanted to leave her because she told him she was pregnant. So that's not our sacrifice, but we have other sacrifices that we can make. So what do those look like? And how can you be a miracle worker today? It's uncomfortable, right, to think that we are the workers of miracles. I want to share with you two examples about miracles. If you've been a part of West for a long time, you may have heard this story before. If you know Leanne Rose, she is Leanne Stoltzfus Rose. Her mother is named Susan Stoltzfus. They're not worshiping with us today in person. They're an Ohio visiting family. But Susan Stoltzfus is a living miracle. She'll tell you that. She's had, I don't know how many different kinds of cancer throughout her life, uh, six or seven, I believe. 
She had a rare form when she was a little girl. And back then, they didn't have all the modern technologies of medicine. And so they radiated the cancer, which ended up, you know, now years and years later, it wreaked a lot of havoc on her body. So in the last 10 years, you know, new cancers started showing up in Susan's life. I was the associate pastor at Williamson's Chapel, and Susan was a part of one of the United Methodist Women's Circles, small groups, and she just had so many friends and family that were surrounding her. When she got a diagnosis that was honestly looking to be one of the worst ones ever, she had had cancer show up again in her body, and this time uh, it looked to be, based on all the scans, that it had moved to her liver. She'd had some scans and they had shown the spots and so then they referred her and she went to another doctor and they did more scans and they said, okay, I want you to come back next week and we'll talk about possible options. You know, once things spread to our liver, there's typically not a lot of hope. Susan and the women's group that supported her so so bravely and lovingly, gathered in the back of Leslie Wilson's yard, and I don't know, there were probably 30, 40 women there that morning. They got in a circle, and Susan stood in the middle, and everybody in that moment was connected somehow, either with their arms around each other or with an arm on Susan. Everybody was touching, and everybody felt this connection, and we prayed. And we prayed for several things. We prayed for bold, divine healing, and we also prayed for peace. I will never, ever, as long as I live, forget the words Susan said when we said amen. She looked at me, and said, I just want you to know that regardless of the outcome of these tests, I have peace. She had no idea what was getting ready to happen. She had no idea if she would be given longevity of life or not. But something happened in that circle. She calls it a miracle. I call it a miracle too, because you see, not just that she got healing that day, but how many of us, when we're faced with a diagnosis of cancer, and it's moved to an organ that we know that the prognosis is not good, tenuous at best, how many of us can stand in that moment and say, I have peace? That's a miracle. Mary had that same miracle. After finding out that her life was going to be turned upside down, she is able to say, my soul magnifies the Lord because he has chosen me, a humble servant. She had a tough miracle. She made sacrifices, but in doing that, in making those sacrifices, she experienced the greatest sense of peace. Now, the second one is 
one that I hope you example, you will take and extrapolate from myself to your own lives. If you were to tell me that I am a miracle, I would laugh and say maybe the fact that I like remember where my keys are, that for me normally is a miracle. But when we were in Uganda a month ago, the first day that we got there and we went and took a tour of the Acres of Hope property, and if you're new to West, we have a partnership with Pastor Jeffrey, Odongo Jeffrey in Uganda, and he has built orphanages and schoolhouses and pod homes. It's just, it's an amazing ministry that we've been able to be a part of from the very, very, very beginning. So that's like one of the coolest things ever. We're standing there and Jeffrey's showing the aquaponics and the tilapia that they grow so that now they truly are becoming self-sustaining. And that's the whole hope, right, of missions and our missional partnerships is not that we give away stuff, but that we empower others to be able to be independent and self-sustaining. So we're standing there and, and Jeffrey looked at me and he said, you know, you're a miracle. And I shook my head and I'm like, well, no, I mean, that makes me very uncomfortable. And he said, no, you don't understand. You've let God use you. So you are a miracle. As I was prepping for today's message, I was trying to think of examples that I could give you that would show you that we all can be miracle workers. And I don't want to like put myself up on a pedestal and say, wow, look at me, I'm your preacher and I am a miracle worker. My point in telling you that story is sometimes the greatest miracles come with the greatest sacrifice. After we first started this partnership with Pastor Jeffrey and we came back and Wes launched and you know, things were going really well. I, I started getting some phone calls for lunch. And if you ever invite me to lunch and I ask you why you want to take me to lunch, it's because I've been burned by a few lunch meetings. So now if you want to take me to lunch, I ask you, why do you want to take me to lunch before we go? Because usually by the end, I end up with a huge case of indigestion. Some folks that were pretty active in the faith community wanted to take me to lunch. And it all went well until the question came, so tell me about this Uganda thing. And so I explained that we had just gotten back, you know, from our second trip, that we were going to start this new thing called child sponsorships. And for $50 a month, a child would be able to live in one of the pod homes and go to school because in Africa and Uganda, school isn't free. And it would pay for their food, their books, their clothing, and all the parts and pieces that needed to go along with it. And... The, the part of the conversation that came next is where the lunch started going like this. And, and they said, you know, Andrea, we need to be in missions at home. I said, yes, I know that. We just finished a back to school bash where we served over eight or 900 kids back then. And, and I said, you know, we gave them haircuts and a free pair of tennis shoes. And I mean, we do ding dong ditch. And as West, we give, we do blood drives, etc. I said, we're very missional here at home. But Jesus said, go into all the world. So I don't think we need to be in 20 different countries. But I, th I do think in order to be like Christ, we need to be in at least one. They expressed that they strongly disagreed with me and that they were not going to be quiet about it. And that if I didn't change the way that I led, they were going to leave the church. 
When you're a new church start pastor and you never know if people are going to show up on Sunday morning or not, and one of your leading families takes you to lunch and says, you know, if you don't lead differently, we're leaving. I told you I had indigestion. I wasn't kidding. I prayed about it a lot after that. I'm like, okay, maybe I'm talking too much about Uganda. Maybe this, maybe that, you know. And um, I talked to a mentor friend of mine. They asked, why do you do what you do? I said, well, to share Jesus' love. They asked where we do it. I said, at home, you know, 75, 80% of all of our missional monies go to the, you know, local community, North Carolina. Maybe 20, 25% go to support Uganda. I said, well, no, that's not really what I mean. You know, why do you do what you do and where do you do it? Do you do it to gain self-promotion and add-a-girls or do you do it from your heart because you believe it's how you make the biggest difference in this world? He said, if that's why you do what you do, then you need to hear the criticism and just let it go. And you need to be true to who God calls you to be. And if that's a pastor of missions, both locally and globally, then you need to be true to who you are and be true to God. And so I talked it over with the leadership team and they all said, of course, we need to be local and global. We're not gonna walk away from a partnership just because a family leaves. That family lived into what they said they would do. They left and they took about three or four other families with them because we were focused on Uganda and we needed to just be focused on here. When Pastor Jeffrey looked at me in Uganda and said, you're a miracle worker, the first thing that popped in my mind was how much I struggled that day doing the right thing. Because you see, I like you know being liked and being popular with people and I don't like running you off from the local church. But I needed to do the right thing. If we wanna get away from the distractions of Christmas, if we wanna get away from the, the crap or the stuff and the consumerism, we have to listen to God. You each have that voice of God speaking to you about something that you can do with your life that will make a difference. You don't have to be a preacher to do it. Not too long ago, a friend of mine that is my Facebook friend posted on his Facebook page something that uh, we were in high school together and I've just seen his post randomly and his post stuck out to me that day. If Chad, my friend from high school, can do this just out of the blue, I think you and I can too. I just went to McDonald's and had one of those moments where I was thankful for what I have so I decided to pay for the person's meal behind me. I was in the drive-thru, so I explained that to the lady, and I got tickled because when I told the cashier, she really looked confused. So I said it again, and she looked at me and said, why would you do that? I said, to be nice and to pay it forward. She grinned from ear to ear and said, I wish I was behind you in line. 
right now more than ever, we should all try to make each other smile like that. It made my day. When I read his post, I thought, hmm, that's the miracle of Christmas. When Jesus gathered with the disciples in the upper room, he knew that his time for earthly miracles was going to be coming to a close. And so he wanted to impart on them the importance and the magnitude of being a follower of God. And so he took a meal that traditionally had been their Passover meal where they gave thanks to God for all that God had rescued them from, all the miracles that they'd had in their lives, tough miracles. But he gave new meaning to that meal. And this morning I invite us to maybe make this meal be a new meaning in each of our lives. Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks to God. And he said, I want you to take this and eat of it. May this be for you, my body broken for you. And when you eat of this, I want you to do it and I want you to remember me. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks to God and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for all for forgiveness of the times that you miss the mark in life. And every time you drink of this, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Gracious God, will you pour out your spirit on this bread and on this cup? Make it be for us, the body and the blood of Christ, so that we may be transformed. So that we may be miracle workers here in our local community and in our world. So that we'll have the courage to do things a little different. God, work in us, move in us, and show us the way that you would have us to be and have us to live so that we can be the Christmas miracle to others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So because we don't believe in asking you to do something and not giving you the tools that you need to do it with, we had the idea of having a basically a reverse happy crap-filled Christmas. Instead of letting ourselves get distracted with all the different parts and pieces, we have, it's like an advent calendar where you count down the days to Christmas, but instead of counting them down and, you know, everybody getting a little special surprise each day, what if we... We, as a body of people, there are about 450, 500 people that call West their faith community home. What if each day between now and Christmas, we do something that would bring joy to somebody else's life? So when you leave worship this morning, you're going to get one of these pieces of paper. Now, don't get stressed because today's is to bake cookies. So if you don't want to bake cookies for someone, choose another day, choose something else. But it's things like purchase. A purchase canned vegetables, purchase canned fruit, tell a silly joke to make someone laugh. Um, all these things that we ask you to purchase and put in this bag are to go help the missions that we're a part of, like the 40 plus backpacks that we fill every other week to take to kids uh, that are in need on free and reduced lunch. Be a part 
of a change that makes a difference. And if you really, really, really wanna make a bigger impact, use this via social media. What if we use that to be a tool for spreading hope and cheer and joy and love this Christmas season? I guarantee you, if we unite together and do something like this, we will become miracle workers. May you go in the season of Thanksgiving and now in the spirit of Christmas. Amen.